if you would turn to Romans chapter 6, and I know this is not Exodus, um, I'll explain why in a second, why Romans 6, we're going to be starting in verse 1, and if you would, read along with me. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know, do you not know, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for what I just read, Lord, that uh, you are the creator and you have created new creations in each person, Lord, that has their faith in you, Lord. We've been born again as a new creation with new life. Lord, I pray this morning as we uh, tackle a subject that can be controversial within the church, Lord, and as I know there are many in here that may not agree 100% with where we stand as a church, Lord, I pray that uh, your word would be heard loudly, um, that we would have charity within uh, the church and unity, Lord, um, that we would uh, love one another, Lord, and I pray that our minds would be open to, to what your word says, Lord, and, and maybe um, even a challenge to convictions that may be held, Lord. And so, God, I just pray that you're with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. Today we're going to do a, um, a topical sermon. If you've been a part of our church, uh, you know that we're in the book of Exodus. Typically, we go verse by verse um, through a book. Uh, but as a pastor, I think it's appropriate every now and then to address a particular topic um, and today I want to address the topic of baptism. Uh, we have a lot to cover this morning. I actually got through it faster than I thought I was going to first service, so that's my goal this service. Um, baptism, uh, surprisingly, is a very deep uh, topic, and so we're going to be trying to cover a lot. Um, and uh, I just want to jump right into it. I- I'm going to address the topic of baptism by asking and answering seven questions concerning baptism. So let's just ask the first one. Why talk about baptism now? Um, It's an interesting time to to bring up baptism. Um, There's two reasons, and the first reason is this, and and this is why now. It's because baptism is related to the Red Sea crossing. We have learned, as we've gone through the book of Exodus, that uh, there are many themes that are found within the Red Sea crossing, We've already looked at some of them. The fear of the Lord, uh, which we see produces joy. Godly fear produces joy and even song and praise. Moses as mediator. Moses as a type of Christ. And this theme is going to get developed as we continue going through the book of Exodus. Israel as a new creation. Israel came out on the other side of the Red Sea and is seen as a new creation. Um, But one of the major themes of the Red Sea crossing is actually baptism. And Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. He says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Again, the Red Sea crossing correlates to baptism And I'm going to talk about this more later, but that's one of the reasons I knew when we got to the Red Sea crossing, Exodus 14. In fact, Daniel's been on my case to do a sermon on baptism. This is a perfect place to do it. So um, you can thank Daniel. The second reason why baptism today, uh, really it's just, I think it's important to understand why we call ourselves Baptists. I've said this a number of times. I get asked this question more than any other question with someone that's visiting our church or looking to come to our church. Even people that have been to our church for a long time, they want to know why we call ourselves Baptist, Country Oaks Baptist Church. We are affiliated with the, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, but 
The Southern Baptist Convention, I've said this a number of times too, believes in the autonomy of the local church, meaning the local church runs the local church. The local church has the authority, not the denomination. So uh, that's not really why we call ourselves Baptists. The, the core, the real reason we call ourselves Baptists is because we baptize believers, not infants. Right? We believe in believers' baptism. So just take a second and think about this. There are many ordinances or symbols in the Old Testament. I mean, all types of laws and ordinances. You have circumcision, sacrifice, Sabbaths, the festivals, so the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've talked about some of these. The Day of Atonement. And I just keep going. But in the New Testament, the church really only has two main ordinances. Right? The Lord's Supper or Communion which we've spent a lot of time in, and we see the correlation with Passover and the Lord's Supper. So again, Exodus points us forward to, to uh, what has become the Lord's Supper, which used to be the Passover feast. And we've even seen in, um, the correlation that we see in Exodus 6. We spent a bunch of time talking about that, but baptism. Right? Those are two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Which leads to a question, I think this is a good question to ask. Why are there so few ordinances or symbols in the New Testament compared to the Old Testament? Well, again, that's a good question. I I believe there's less because we have the privilege, and I want you to think about that. We have the privilege of having a clearer revelation than the Old Testament saints had. We have the New Testament. We have the reality of the things foreshadowed or symbolized in the Old Testament. We have the reality. Colossians 2.16 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In other words, we're, we're no longer under the Old Testament law in regards to festivals, Sabbaths, food laws. Verse 17 says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We as New Testament believers have the substance. We have Christ. We see more clearly. Therefore, in the Old Testament, there are many symbols pointing God's people forward to Jesus, to, to the coming Messiah. In the New Testament, though, we have the substance. God has revealed his son to us. In fact, Jesus himself says this in Matthew thirteen seventeen. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. The Old Testament saints long to see and know what we know as New Testament believers. Right? But did not see it. And to hear what you have hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And we are blessed. We are blessed to have God's revelation in, in such an abundant way to I mean, even modern day world, there's many countries that it's illegal to have scripture. And, and we have it. And we have it in a, like 700 different translations right, in English. But not only that, we have the New Testament. God has revealed his son to us in his word, in the New Testament, and in the gospel. So, we don't have as many ordinances. We have two. Right? The Lord's table and baptism, both point to the salvation that we have. Uh, So I want to talk about baptism today. Again, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Lord's table, but let's talk about baptism today. So the second question I want to ask is this, why do we baptize? Simple question. Has a simple answer. It's commanded. (laughs) So we do it. In fact, Matthew 28, 18 says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. That's the command. Make disciples of all nations. Important there. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now the command in that the Great Commission, I want to be clear, is to make disciples. That's the main verb the imperative in the sentence that's being spoken by Jesus. We are to make disciples. There's two clauses that come after the main imperative to make disciples that explain how to make disciples. We are to baptize them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Meaning we make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. In fact, the Greek word disciple just means learner. Learners, 
disciple someone by teaching them. Um, but why baptizing? What's that have to do with making disciples in the Great Commission? Well, baptizing because baptism is related to salvation. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. Meaning, we evangelize, we share the gospel. And if someone accepts the gospel, believes in Jesus, and is saved, in other words, we baptize them as a symbol of their salvation. It's a symbol, a sign of their salvation. Therefore, Scripture presents baptism as the first step of obedience after salvation. Again, verse 19 says this, Go therefore and make disciples, that's the command, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to absorb all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, we make disciples by evangelizing, then by baptizing, and then by teaching. So baptism is an ordinance. It's commanded by Jesus himself to his bride, the church. It's what we're called to do. And I want to be super clear on this, though. Baptism doesn't save. Scripture is just very, very clear on this. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. In other words, it's only through faith that salvation comes. It's by grace, meaning no works. That includes obedience in, in the Lord's Supper or baptism. It doesn't add to your salvation. It doesn't save. It's, it's being obedient. But that doesn't mean just because it, it doesn't save that baptism isn't important. Again, it's the first step. It's supposed to be the first step of obedience. It's a sign of genuine faith and salvation. So we baptize right? because it's a command. Baptist and we baptize. So the third question I want to ask is, who should we baptize? The answer again, simply, those who have faith, right? those who are saved, those who are born again believers. It's what we call believers' baptism. When we say believers' baptism, that means we baptize those that believe, that have faith. Now, before I move on in this question, I know that there are many of you in this room right now, in fact, there are many of you that are maybe even listening online that are attending our church and that are a part of our church and and love our church in so many ways that practice and believe in infant baptism. And my goal today, and I hope you hear my heart, my goal today as I look out and I know some of you and I've met with some of you and just so you know, you're not alone because there's a couple of you. My goal today is not to offend you this morning. I hope, I hope if anything, I want you just to hear why we as a church, as an elder board, and really as a church as a whole, have such a strong conviction about believers' baptism. And I, I hope you can understand where we're coming from at the end of the sermon. And, and again, my goal, just to be honest, is to change your convictions about this because I do believe it's biblical. But let me start with this and just kind of get this just right off the front. Nowhere in Scripture do we have an example of an infant being baptized. Not one place. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do we see someone being baptized that doesn't have faith first. Not one time in Scripture is there an infant or an unsaved human being baptized. Now, for those that hold to infant baptism, I know you probably understand the argument for it better than many of us Baptists within this church. Um, Let me say this, there's five times that whole households are baptized in Scripture. Five times that, again, a leader of a household is saved and is baptized and their whole household is baptized, but it doesn't say anything about infants being baptized. In fact, three out of the five times we see in Scripture whole households being baptized, it's clear that saving faith came upon the whole household before they were baptized with, with three of them out of the five which I think Luke, who's the author of Acts, who makes this very clear, is showing us that that was the norm, that faith would come on the whole household, the whole household would believe, and then the whole household would be baptized together. For example, in Acts 10, you can go read the whole long um, just chapter there in story of Cornelius. His whole household, listen to this, his whole household heard the gospel. It's clear. They all believed They all received the Holy Spirit, which is a sign of salvation, right? The seal. 
they all started speaking in, in tongues, which in the first century church, I really believe that that was a sign for the Jews to realize Gentiles were, were saved and actually had the Holy Spirit at that time. That's a whole other subject. I don't get sidetracked there. They all were praising God, and then they were all baptized. In fact, in Acts 18.8, it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Belief came first and then they were baptized, in other words. There's just no evidence anywhere in Scripture that a non-believing child or infant was baptized. Period. Then why do people believe that infants should be baptized. Why do denominations and traditions believe this? Again, there are many, many traditions and denominations and people I love and respect even that baptize infants. Well, it's because they see a correlation between circumcision and baptism. They see a lot of continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament and the covenantal sign of circumcision and the covenantal sign, the new covenantal sign, of baptism, they see a lot of continuity between the two. We're going to come back to this, and I'll talk about this in a, in a second. But the fourth question I want to ask this morning is, what is baptism? And we'll come back to the, that whole idea that I talked about. What is baptism? And I think this is an important question to ask before we get going on some of the other topics. So what is baptism? Simply, baptism is immersion in water. In fact, the word baptism literally means Immersion. The Greek word baptizo means to dip in, right? And if you're around water, it's to dip in or or to put underwater, completely immerse or submerge. The English word baptism is actually a transliteration of the Greek word. It's not a translation, meaning you have in your English Bibles... Uh, the word is not translated. All they do is they take English letters and sounds and make a word that sounds like the Greek word. The Greek word is baptizo, right? The English word is baptism. It's just a transliteration of that word. But if they would have translated it in your English Bibles, which I wish they would have, they would have translated it like all the other Greek words that they translate. <laughs> Everywhere you see the word baptism, it would be translated Immersed, immersion, submerge, dip completely underwater. And to be honest, again, I wish they did. It would eliminate, I believe, much confusion because nowhere in Scripture do we see sprinkling or pouring. We only see immersion. And again, I know there are many traditions and denominations that sprinkle infants and call that baptism. We don't see sprinkling again anywhere in scripture. Okay, let me just give you a few examples of this. John 3.23 says this, the gospel of John. John also was baptizing at um, Anon and near Salem because, listen, water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. If John was okay with pouring or sprinkling, why would he have to be near so much water? It's because it's clear that he wasn't sprinkling, he was dunking. (laughs) In fact, Matthew 3.16 makes this very clear. It says this, And when Jesus was baptized, he's being baptized by John, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came, or he went up from the water. What does this imply? That he was in the water, and he came up out of the water. Implies immersion. He went up from the water. Listen to Acts 8. Sorry, in verse 35, this is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. It says this, And Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture, and he told the good news about Jesus. What's he doing? He's sharing the gospel there, and it implies that, that, that the eunuch accepts the gospel and is saved. Verse 36, And they were going along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both, listen to this, they both went down into the water. And Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Again, if you would translate that Greek word, it would say he immersed him. What did he immerse him in? The water. 
and they came up out of the water. What does this imply? Philip dunked him. Not a basketball term. Again, you just have no examples of sprinkling anywhere in the New Testament, only immersion. Immersion. Um, Why does this matter? We make such a big deal. I, I risk offending a number of you that are in the service this morning. Again, it matters because there are many denominations and traditions that sprinkle. Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, many of the Reformed traditions. In fact, there are many theologians, pastors, and even friends of mine that I absolutely love and respect as godly people right, that disagree with these. I could just name one, R.C. Sproul, who our church loves. Right? So why make such a big deal about this? Well, there's two reasons why I make a big deal about it. First, I want to be faithful to the command. It's simple. The command is to immerse. Why would I do anything else? Again, Matthew 28, 18 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That means immerse. Immerse them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, it's the only example we see in Scripture. We only see, see this dunking in water. This immersion in water. So that's the first reason. I want to be faithful to the command that's given to us in Scripture. The second reason, though, is immersion make sense of the symbolism behind baptism. Leads me to the fifth question I want to ask and answer this morning. What is the significance of baptism, or what does the symbolism symbolize? What's the purpose of baptism? Well, here's where we're at in Romans 6. So if you're still there, Romans 6, verse 1. If not, you can turn there. Let me just give you the context so we understand what's going on in this passage. Paul is laying out the gospel, and he anticipates some objections, or at least some questions. The gospel, the good news, he goes way in depth in the book of Romans, um, and he anticipates some questions. He knows that, that people, he's not having a conversation with people. He's sending this letter, and he knows that there's, he's just done this long enough. He knows that there's going to be questions. In fact, in fact, the question that we see in verse 1, one of the questions and objections, I have heard this question a number of times after sharing the gospel, and it's this. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if it's all by grace, just a free gift by God. Right? Salvation, right? it's just grace. There's nothing you can do. There's no works. There's nothing that, that gets you saved besides, besides God's grace through faith. Why not continue in sin? Why not just live it up? Why should we change anything we do? Again, I have had people ask this question, and, and people have asked it just legitimately. Like, well, why would I change anything I'm doing then if it's just by grace, not works? Well, Paul responds in verse 2. He says this, by no means. There's an there's a emphasis in the Greek there. That's why you got the exclamation point. By no means that we should continue in sin. And then he says this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Listen to what he says. How can we who died to sin. Christians have died to sin. Well, what's that mean? Well, Paul explains what this means right, by appealing to the spiritual reality behind the symbolism of baptism. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say just before we, we look at the spiritual reality behind the symbolism of baptism. Uh, there's one thing that, that just kind of strikes me in this passage. Paul assumes that everyone in the church is baptized. Just think about that for a second. In fact, that's just an assumption throughout the whole New Testament. There's two assumptions in the, in the New Testament that I think should be convicting for us as modern-day believers. Two things. One, that every single Christian would be a part of a local church. Right? He wants to talk to, Christian, or to Christians. What's he do? He sends letters to churches. Because all the Christians in that area would be a part of that local church. The second thing he assumes is that every single person within that congregation has been baptized. If they're saved, they've been baptized. He just assumes it. And so he's going to answer this question by giving the spiritual reality behind the symbolism. Look what he says in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, it's just assumed, into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory 
of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, water baptism symbolizes, okay, this is a spiritual reality, it symbolizes the old life dying. Right? Who we were before we were saved, dying, being buried in the grave with Christ in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. We were raised to walk a new life. You see the symbolism? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 just simply says, and again, this is the, the spiritual reality behind the symbolism of baptism. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is why the symbolism of immersion in water is so perfect. Think about it. When someone sits in the baptismal that's behind me, and we've seen this a number of times, when someone sits in the baptismal that represents right, the old life, when they are immersed in water, represents death and burial in the grave, completely underwater. Right? The old life is being buried in the grave. When they rise out of the water, it represents being raised with Christ from the dead. They are a new creation, raised to a new life. Romans 6, 4 says, We too might walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is why sprinkling or pouring just doesn't capture the symbolism. Our transformation was way more radical than that. Our old self, dead, buried, And we are raised to a new creation. Let me just read a couple other passages that I think just capture this. Baptism isn't even mentioned in any of these passages, but it's the spiritual reality that's happened to us that that is the, the theology that is symbolized or what has happened in reality that is symbolized in baptism. So let me just read a couple passages. Turn to Ephesians 2 verse 1, and I know... We always go to this passage, but it's that important. Um, As I read it, and for most of us, we're very familiar with this passage now, I just want you to to visualize what happens when we do water baptism and see how it correlates to this passage. Think of the symbolism we see in baptism. Verse 1, this is the old self. And you were dead. In other words, this is who you used to be. He's talking to Christians. And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air. By the way, that's Satan. He was our prince. That's who we were. In the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature. This is the nature of the old self. This is who we were. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, the old self, right before salvation, by nature, children of wrath like the the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Because of God's mercy, in other words, our old self has passed away and it's buried with Christ. And look what verse 6 says. And raised us up. Thinking of being raised out of the water. That's when we all clap. (laughs) For a reason. It's the picture of a new life. It's symbolism. It doesn't save, it doesn't do anything. It's a picture of what has happened to that person spiritually. They're being raised out of death, raised out of the grave to a new life. Verse 6, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it just goes, the blessings just go from there in this passage. We know it very well. So let's turn to a different one. Titus 3, verse 3. This is Mike Owen's favorite passage, so we'll go over this one. Titus 3, verse 3. It says this, 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and listen to this, slaves. We were once slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. How many of you, does this resonate? This is who you were before you were saved. The sinners that we were before we were saved. It's not like we're perfect afterwards, but the, the, the desires we had have just all changed. This is who we were, the old self. That's what's passed away. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's nothing we did. But in according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and a renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become Errors according to the hope of eternal life. That's who we are now. Right? The old self is gone, it's dead, it's buried. We are raised to a new life, a new self, a new creation. We are born again. Second birth. By the washing of regeneration. That's regeneration. We're regenerate. We are born again. And renewal of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual, immoral, nor adulterer, nor or, nor um, idolater. Sorry, adulterer. Nor men who practice homosexuality. Nor thieves. Nor the greedy. Nor drunkards. Nor revilers. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse eleven. And such were some of you. He said this was you. It was you before the mercy and grace of God came. This was the old self. This was what was put to death, buried in the grave. Verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, the whole Trinity. Again, think of the symbolism of water baptism. The old self is crucified and buried, going down into the water. It's, it's dead. The new life is raised out of the water, a new self, a new creation. Spiritual reality behind water baptism. This is why immersion, right, dipping, dunking into water, is so appropriate. It's so appropriate. This is also where we see the correlation between the Red Sea crossing and baptism. Just think about it. We know Exodus well now, so think about Exodus. Chapters 1 through 13, before the Red Sea crossing, Israel was a slave nation. They were in slavery. In one sense, they were dead. They were a slave nation under, I mean, they had no hope. They were under the rule of a pagan nation, Egypt, living under the rule of Pharaoh himself, which is portrayed as the seed of the serpent, really a type of Satan himself under his rule as his slaves, hopeless, no land, no kingdom, no king. But then they pass through the Red Sea. Now remember what the sea represents in Scripture. We've talked about this a couple times now. It represents chaos and death and judgment. We see this over and over and over again throughout the Scriptures. It really represents the grave, especially the Red Sea. In fact, in Exodus 15, verse 12, the song, remember, that we went over after the Red Sea crossing, this is what it says in this song, verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. It doesn't say the sea swallowed them. It says the earth swallowed them, because what it's saying here is that the Red Sea was a grave. The grave swallowed them. In fact, that's exactly what Exodus 14, verse 30 portrays. It says this, 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. As they looked out to the Red Sea, what they just crossed, all they saw was dead bodies. It was a grave. Now think about it. Israel's old life, a life of slavery, was on the one side of the Red Sea. They passed through the Red Sea, which is a grave, ending up coming out on the other side, which brought new life, new freedom. They were a new creation as they were raised out of the Red Sea. They were a new creation. They even had a new leader. Not Pharaoh anymore. They had Moses. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And the Red Sea crossing was a foreshadow of the salvation that we will have in Christ. Instead of being slaves to Egypt, we were slaves to sin. Instead of being under Pharaoh's rule, Satan was our father and prince. Instead of being baptized into Moses, we were baptized into Christ. This is the symbolism of baptism. This is why immersion is so important. The old self, dead and buried and being raised to life. New life, new creation, new birth, spiritual birth. And that's super important as we go to this next question. The sixth question I want to ask and answer, what is the relationship between baptism and circumcision? Now, this is an important question because as I have said, some traditions see a strong continuity between circumcision and baptism. Now, let me just explain, and um, for you that believe in infant baptism, I'm sure you know this, but for, for many of us, you've probably have never seen this before or never thought about this before, so let me explain. Circumcision was the covenantal sign of the Old Testament, right? The Old Covenant. Baptism is the covenantal sign of the New Covenant. So, there is some correlation, if anything, at least that, right? There's some continuity between circumcision and baptism. They both are signs of a covenant, if anything. In the Old Testament, you were circumcised on the eighth day, signifying an infant is part of the covenantal community, which is Israel. You were born into Israel, right? You were physically born into Israel. You were born into the covenantal community. And let me be clear, that didn't mean infants were saved. In the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, people were saved through faith in the Old Testament in Yahweh and the coming seed, in the New Testament in Christ. It was through faith. You were just born into the covenantal community, right? Israel. Some traditions believe that this is true in the New Covenant community too. You can be born into the covenantal community, the church. Therefore, just like circumcision in the Old Testament, the sign of the New Testament being baptism, therefore you should give the sign to infants if they are born to parents that belong to the church, at least one parent that belongs to the church. Then they're born into the covenantal community, and they see a correlation between uh, circumcision and baptism. Simply, you circumcise an infant after physical birth, in the Old Covenant. Therefore, you should baptize an infant after physical birth in the New Covenant. Now, I really can sympathize with this argument. And I want to be clear, I respect many, many that hold to this position. Uh, But I have a lot of issues with it. And the biggest one is that I believe it misses the uniqueness of the New Covenant. So if you would, turn with me to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is, let me explain what's going on here. This is a prophecy. God has told Jeremiah to take this message and proclaim it, right? So this message comes straight from God, right? And he's prophesying the new covenant. He's predicting this new covenant that's going to come, and he's going to describe this new covenant. Listen to verse 32. He says this, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So the new covenant will not be like the old covenant. It will be different. And this passage, I believe, because I believe there's many differences between the Old Covenant and New Covenant, I believe this passage really gets to the heart of the difference, the core of the difference between the Old and New Covenant. So verse 32, it says this, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So here's here's what distinguishes this new covenant that's coming from the old covenant. This is what God says. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, unlike the old covenant, which had the law written on tablets, it was external God wrote the law, as we'll see in in Sinai. He wrote it on tablets. Unlike that, the new covenant, God won't write it on tablets. He'll write the law on our hearts. He says, I'll write it, the law, on their hearts. In other words, I will change their hearts in the new covenant. Verse 34, he says this, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. Right? In the old covenant, you would have to evangelize those within the covenant community. Why? Right? You would have to say, know the Lord, which is a form of evangelism. You're you're commanding the person, hey, know the Lord. Why? Because there are people born into the covenant, right, covenantal community that didn't know the Lord. In the Old Testament, there are many many unsaved Israelites that didn't know the Lord. Just read the Old Testament. (laughs) People that were born, physically born into the covenantal community that didn't know the Lord. So you would have to evangelize and tell them, know the Lord. This is actually why God sent prophets to Israel. God's covenantal people, he would send prophets with the message, repent and believe. It's an evangelistic message. In other words, know the Lord. But Jeremiah says this will not be the case in the New Testament or the New Covenant. Verse 34 says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Right? This is not saying that we're not going to teach each other in the New Testament. This is saying we will not have to evangelize those that who are truly a part of the New Covenant because they'll be saved. We won't have to say know the Lord because they will know the Lord. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Again, everyone that is truly a member of the new covenant, everyone that's truly a part of the new covenant community will be saved, will know the Lord, will have the law written on their hearts, which I believe points to new birth, spiritual birth. So let me just compare and contrast the Old and New Covenant. According to Jeremiah 31, the Old Covenant, not everyone within the covenantal community will be saved. Right? They weren't all saved because they were physically born into the covenant. They became Israelites through birth, through physical birth. Therefore, they were given the covenantal sign at birth, at physical birth. Circumcision, just think about that. Circumcision was placed on the reproductive organism, right? That correlates to physical birth. In the new covenant, you are spiritually born into the covenantal community. Right? The New Testament is just clear on it. I just went over passage and passage and passage talking about the old self dying and being born again to a new creation, a new life. This is especially seen, and I don't even have time to go over this, in John 3. 
I mean, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, what do, what do I need to do to, to enter the kingdom of God? And, and Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Spiritual birth. Second birth. When you are saved, when God gets a hold of your heart and given new life and you're given a new heart, when you are born again, you enter into the covenantal community. Therefore, it's not, it's, therefore, it's only after the second birth that you truly become a part of the covenantal community, the new covenantal community, the church. Meaning, the new covenant sign should be saved for those who are part of the covenant. Those that have been born again, those that are truly saved, those that are believers. And it's exactly what baptism symbolizes, a new life. Romans 6, raised to walk in newness of life, new birth. Circumcision symbolizes physical birth. Baptism symbolizes a spiritual birth, born again. Again, the old covenant, you were physically born into the covenantal community. After physical birth, you were given the, the, the covenant sign. Right, the sign of the covenant, circumcision. In the new covenant, you are spiritually born into the covenantal community. And after spiritual birth, you're given the covenantal sign, baptism. Right, there is a continuity between the covenants, very clearly in Scripture. But according to Jeremiah 31, there is a major discontinuity. The new covenant is unique and better, in fact. Because those in the new covenant will all have the law written on their hearts. They will all be born again. This is why believers' baptism and not infant baptism. Please me to my seventh question, and this may be the most important question that I ask and answer this morning. Should you get baptized? Yes. Let's pray. We'll be done. Listen, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you should get baptized. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you should put your faith in him. And just give you the warning. God's wrath is heading your direction. The Bible is clear. You're an enemy of God. You're in rebellion of him. Repent from that rebellion. Turn to him. Believe in his son who died on the cross for your sins, who was raised on the third day, promising life to you. That you can be raised, not, not just physically one day, but spiritually when you put your faith in him. Raised from the dead life you have right now. And when you do that, put your faith in Christ, then get baptized. As a symbol of what happened spiritually to you. Listen, if you are saved, you should get baptized. You should publicly proclaim that you have embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Listen, baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't add to your salvation at all. It's purely out of obedience. It's purely out of publicly proclaiming what has happened to you spiritually. It's the covenantal sign. It's the public declaration. It's like a wedding ring. Just think about that. You know, at weddings, I always say this ring does not make one married. It's a sign. It's a symbol of a loving commitment to them and to everyone else that sees it. Right? They, that this person from here on out is part of a covenant of marriage. And that's a sign. It's a covenantal sign. Let me just ask this question. What does it say if a man tries to hide his wedding ring? Not he accidentally forgot it one day or lost it. I lose things, so. But that he purposely hides, or purposely doesn't wear his wedding ring. Listen, baptism is a sign of the covenant. It's, it's a covenantal sign. It's a sign of salvation. What does it say about your relationship with Christ if you refuse to obey him? Now, for some of you that I may not have convinced, you have a conviction about 
infant baptism and you have been faithful to either be baptized or had your kids baptized. And I'm not talking to you. I hope I convinced you. And we can keep talking about this. I'm talking about those who refuse to get baptized for whatever reason. Because they're embarrassed they haven't been baptized for so long. Because of pride, maybe just laziness. I don't know what the reason is. But what does it say about your relationship with Christ if you refuse to obey him? If you refuse to publicly proclaim your allegiance to him? If you refuse to take on the covenantal sign? If you refuse to get baptized? Now, I don't say this to just dump a bunch of guilt on you. I say this as a warning because Jesus gives this warning in Matthew 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. There my Father. God, I pray that the words that were spoken today represented what your word says well, Lord. God, I pray that you give us a conviction about baptism at our church, Lord, that not only if there are those in our congregation that haven't been baptized, Lord, I pray that you give them the courage, the conviction, the desire, Lord, to be faithful to you. Lord, to, to publicly display what has happened to them spiritually, Lord they would be obedient to what you have commanded them to do to get baptized, Lord. I pray for that conviction, Lord. God, I also pray that we would lead others, that we would not only share, evangelize, lead people to Christ, but afterwards be very clear that the next step of obedience is baptism, that they should get baptized. Lord, I pray that you continue our our love and unity within this body, Lord, and that if there are those that still believe in pedo-baptist or infant baptism, Lord, that, that they know that they're brothers and that they're loved. But I do pray, Lord, that we also are unified in convictions, that we have a shared conviction that we should be baptizing believers, Lord. So however you work that out, Lord, we trust you in your son's name. Amen.